Pete, okay, remember that movie? It's, it's, a, it's an old sci-fi movie. It was so old, you can kind of see the strings on the spaceship. So that's how old it is. But the whole movie's about, there's a world, another planet colliding to Earth. And so everybody's in a frenzy, and they're trying to escape to another planet. And like, as the movie progresses, you see this planet getting larger and larger. And the movie is when worlds collide. Well, it's an appropriate metaphor for what happened when Serena and I got married. <laughs> right? Because it was literally two worlds colliding. Our two families could not have been more different. Really, they could not. He's a pastor's child, PK, real conservative. My parents are wannabe Italian gangsters. I mean, <laughs> I kid you not. I mean, we just come from two different worlds. You know, in her family, the communication was very subdued, very limited. During meals, you really didn't talk. In our family, we just talk like crazy. And emo talk about emotional freedom. I mean, you felt anything, you were angry, you were bitter, you held nothing back, right? Because if you held it back, they're going to eat you alive, right? So you'd go to dinner table, you'd go to the family meetings with just your guns drawn. Um, even like lifestyle, very conservative. I don't think you guys had anything on a TV, maybe, didn't watch TV, like no radio practically. I'm <laughs> very conservative. I mean, they were like dressed up for dinner. Our family, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but our family, we dressed down for dinner. Very opposite. So imagine just uh, you know, coming under one roof. How many adjustments that soon had to make with me and myself to her? I mean, a lot of adjustments because different culture, different upbringing, different background. It took us many years to sort through. We're still sorting, them, sorting through them now. Go through all of this because we're so different. Well, I mentioned that because the same thing is happening in the church. As we all come under the one umbrella of the local church, we have unity in doctrine. We have unity in Christ. But we need to understand that we come from diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures, and diverse upbringing. And so when we come under the one umbrella of the local church, all these worlds are colliding. Maybe you realize it, maybe you don't. As you fellowship with one another, as you dialogue, as you spend time, you realize, wait, we're really different people, and we're clashing at some flashpoints. Well, what are some flashpoints? Historically in the church, I'm not sure at Cornerstone so much, but historically in the church, these have been some flashpoints of contention within the local church. For example, watching a movie in a theater was a point of contention. Or watching a movie on Sunday. Or eating at a restaurant on the Lord's Day. Working on Sunday. That was a huge issue. I mean, churches split. I mean, there was out and out doctrinal, theological, personal battles over this issue of whether a Christian can work on Sundays. How about drinking wine in moderation? Um, how about this? I read this. Wearing a two-piece swimsuit. Women only, right? <laughs> Point of contention. <laughs> um, gambling. Gambling 
and of itself gambling for recreation, about playing cards, about smoking a cigarette, listening to secular music, men having long hairs below their ears, for women having hair that were above their shoulders, about currently these um, karaoke singing rooms. Right? Believe it or not, these issues have been hotly debated within the church and it has caused much division. There are sincere believers who, who, who say and believe that all those that were mentioned are, are sinful. They're prohibited for the believer. And there are other believers who think that all of those are within the constraints of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. So we are allowed to participate in that. Now why is this so? Why is there such uh, debate, division concerning these things? Because the main reason is that biblical commands tend to be general in character. Biblical commands tend to be general in character. Commands like, be holy, love one another, be separate from the world, and so on and so on. There are general commands. We are hard-pressed to find specific commands that deal with everyday life, right? There aren't commands on scripture about uh, secular music per se, or um, even for guys, some churches consider having facial hair was considered sinful. I mean, you won't find commandments concerning these specific areas. So because the commands are general, it is up to each believer to discover these biblical principles and make appropriate applications to our unique situation and to our unique context. But sad to say, obviously, by looking at that list, many Christians have not done this well because they considered all these things as sinful. Now, that is one extreme, the extreme of legalism. What about the other side? And I think that's where we're at at Cornerstone. Cornerstone culture, uh, Cornerstone people, I don't think we're legalists. I, I really don't. Uh, we get accused of this from time to time, but almost every time it's by people who don't know us. They're, they're from people outside of our church, and they hear about us, they think we're legalists. Um, if they knew us, they would know we're in no way close to being legalistic. Right? I think it would be a compliment to say that we were legalistic. Right? It would be a compliment, because that would kind of give an idea that we're really holier than we are. I say that because we're the opposite, are we not? I mean, we are, if we were to choose one, we would say we are kind of antinomian than legalistic, right? We're more libertine, right? In terms of how we spend our money, spend our time, what we expose ourselves to in terms of music and movies, and the things that we involve ourselves in the world, no way are we on the legalistic side. We're on the libertine side. I believe that our understanding of Christian freedom and responsibility is really um, distorted. It's not faithful to Scripture. We need to understand, guys, one thing. That Christian freedom, according to the Bible, is not talking about gambling. It's not talking about how much alcohol we can drink or going to clubs. 
you know, freedom in Christ, I'm going to clubs this weekend, or going dancing, or watching sinful movies, or listening to all kinds of secular music. Participating in these activities under the guise of Christian freedom is a wrong understanding of what the Bible has to say about this area. That mindset is not reflective of a genuine understanding of the gospel and, and Christ's call to live a radical life as a disciple of Christ. If you're using um, verses in the scriptures to justify these activities, then really you are taking these New Testament passages and you are taking them out of context. You are twisting them to cover your own sins. Because when the Bible talks about freedom, it's not about freedom to toy with sin. Freedom to stretch the issue of temptation. How close can I get to temptation without falling into sin? That's not Christian freedom. When the Bible talks about Christian freedom in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, it was talking about religious freedom. Two key issues on diet and holy days. Diet and holy days. Right. You know, if I could stretch that metaphor of worlds colliding one more time, same thing was happening in the New Testament church. In our retreat, we learned about, in the book of Acts, the birth of the, of the New Testament church and how Gentile Christians were embraced into the local church on equal footing with Jewish Christians. And we studied that in the, in the retreat, and we, we might think, well, happily ever after. They lived happily ever after. Well, that's not what occurred. Because of these two diverse backgrounds, there were major issues in the church in New Testament times. And the contention surrounded what foods we were allowed to eat as Christians, and what days were holy and appropriate for worship. Jewish believers believe that you shouldn't eat meat, and I believe particularly, it's not mentioned in the Bible, but pork. Because of dietary laws, they believe that it would defile a man to worship God if he ate pork. And there are these Gentile believers, ate Spam all their lives, right? Grew up with Spam. So they're eating pork like crazy. They're making pork, they have, they're inviting the Jewish believers, hey, come over, Mr. S you know, uh, Stern or Mr. I don't know. Uh, Heinz, I don't know. Come over. Right? Not in my notes. Come over and we'll have dinner. And what does he prepare? He prepares a dish full of pork. And the Gentile, a Jewish Christian was offended. What are you doing? This will defile us for worship. And the Gentile believer, what are you talking about? All things are permissible. Why don't you dine with me? It's because you're looking down on me because I'm a Gentile. Right? I mean, these issues were festering in the church at that time. And became a source of great division. Well, that's what was happening in the New Testament church. Now today, we don't have debates or issues about pork, do we? Right? I mean, my graduation, you guys all ate pork really well. No problems here. But issue for us is not diet and holy days. It's really about these other disputable matters, about clothing, about maybe music, about, about um, you know, Mu music, all those different things that were mentioned before. Well, to uh, gain some insight, to gain some clarity, let's turn to Romans chapter 14, 1 through 23. And uh, I don't think we'll get to the whole thing uh, today, 
but we'll try to look at four principles, four principles on the freedoms and responsibilities of Christians. Freedoms and responsibilities of Christians. Guys, it's really imperative that all of us are on the same page uh, concerning uh, these issues. Uh, wrong understanding here will cause division over um, opinions, over preferences, over disputable matters that will cause division. Wrong understanding here will create wrong expectations. You would think, hey, this is what I was taught, this is what I believed, everybody should be like this. Wrong expectations. It will cause you to provoke one another to sin. You know how you can provoke another person to sin? Find your preferences on someone else. I'm a mature Christian. These are my convictions. Therefore, these must be your convictions as well. You will provoke that person to sin. You are saying, I'll be your Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what is right and I'll tell you what is wrong, what is appropriate and inappropriate. Clarity is so important. Furthermore, I think um, when we stress these non-biblical commands, it undermines the biblical commands. Right? And we stress these legalistic things, these peripheral things. It really undermines, it diminishes the important commands of the scriptures. Right? Well, let's go to the four principles. Number one, we need to learn to distinguish between matters of command and matters of freedom. Between matters of command and matters of freedom. Now, there are two areas of decision-making in the Christian life. Very simple. One area, the first area, is categorized by the commands of God. Commands of God, the source of Scripture, it applies to all. These are black and white issues. There are no and, buts, or for the believer. It's not an issue whether one believes it or not, or feels it or not. If it is what the Bible commands, and the believer is bound to submit to its truths. We were involved in the process of church discipline about two years ago. And the person's defense was, I don't feel convicted about this sin. <clears throat> I shouldn't be church disciplined because the Holy Spirit hasn't convicted me that this is wrong. Well, our response is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you feel convicted or not, if you feel it's sinful or not. If the Bible says it's sin, that's it. Whether you acknowledge it or not, feel it or not, it is sin. We must obey the clear commands of Scripture. These areas are indisputable. They're not open to debate. They're not open to dialogue. It is an issue of discovering its truths, having it proclaimed, and submitting to its commands. That's the first area. Now the second area is the area of freedom. Area of freedom. Um, look at Romans 14.1. Paul says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. So Paul identifies, acknowledges that in the Christian life there are disputable matters. In the New American Standard Version, Paul is translated without passing judgment on his opinions. So this area is the opposite of the first. This area is non-scriptural. It's outside the Bible. 
This is the gray area of the Christian life, the non-moral area of the Christian life. Right? The alternatives that are considered by Paul here, whether eating meat or not eating meat, neither right or neither wrong in themselves. It's a disputable issue. It's an opinion. You want to eat meat, you don't want to eat meat, there is no right, there is no wrong. The New Testament does not command us to eat meat, nor does it forbid us from eating meat. The following statements by Paul make it clear that he was talking about this area of freedom, and there is freedom in Christ. Romans 14, 14. I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. Romans 14, 20. All food is clean. The area of diet, 1 Corinthians 8, 9. This liberty is yours. You have the freedom. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful. So the first step is to clearly distinguish between these two areas. When you come upon a decision, you got to say, is this under the command of God? If it is, then I need to submit. I don't have an option here. Now, if it is not, then is this in the area of Christian freedom? Right. Now, in this area of freedom, the, the disputable matters, there were two groups of people in the church that were affected and involved. Two groups of people. Paul identifies one in verse 1. Accept him who is weak in faith. The one is those who are weak in faith. The other is the group that's accepting the weak in faith, the strong in faith. Let me give you a brief definition of these two groups. The strong Christian is one who has a clear understanding of Christian freedom and is strong in his or her convictions. Therefore, with a clear conscience, without being influenced by others, he or she exercises his or her own liberty in Christ. Right? The key words, that's a clear understanding, clear conscience, without influence. It's not being manipulated, it's not being persuaded, without influence, exercising one's Christian freedom. That's the strong brother. The weak Christian, weak brother, is one because of the weakness of his faith. Because he lacks knowledge. He has a weak conscience. And therefore, he can be easily influenced by other mature Christians to sin against his own conscience. That's a weak Christian. Weak Christian can be illustrated as someone who believes that eating meat is wrong, but because a mature Christian tells him to eat meat, Lack of knowledge, weak conscience, weakened conviction is influenced to sin against his own conscience and thereby led to eat meat. The weaker brother is recognized by his weakness in four areas of his life. We'll go through this briefly. Number one, he is weak in faith, not saving faith, not salvation. But it means that this man's faith is not strong enough to enable him to perceive and partake of the full liberty he has in Christ. Right. Not strong enough, not mature enough to partake of the full liberty he has in Christ. Now, I mean, let me just stop right here and illustrate this briefly. Uh, we need to understand the power of childhood influences. Right. 
you know, I don't know about you guys, but in me, it is ingrained in me a respect for elders. I can't get away from it. I was raised in Korea by my grandparents. Honoring elders was ingrained in me from the start. I remember vividly as a kindergarten student sitting in the bus and watching older men and women come into the bus and all younger men and women getting up and giving their seats. I mean, it was, it was almost like it was a given. And if you weren't, they would all beat, beat you up and everybody would gang up on you if you didn't. I remember, um, you know, just being taught to shake hands with adults with both hands, giving them honor. In Korean, there are honorific words when talking to adults that are different when you talk to your peers or someone who are younger. When I came to the States and in high school, a friend of mine called his dad by his first name. And I nearly had a heart attack. And what are you doing? I was unspeakable. That's, that's un, unacceptable because that was ingrained in me from childhood. So even today, I can't call like older uh, adults by their first names. I mean, Professor Pettigrew, he asked me, just call me Larry. Man, I can't call him Larry, right? I mean, the whole retreat, even if it was one-on-one, -on -one, Professor Pettigrew, Dr. Pettigrew. Well, that was what was going on with these Jewish Christians. They grew up from childhood to avoid, being taught to avoid all kinds of idolatry. And they're expressly forbidden to eat meat, pork specifically, because it defiled one from worship of God. So he, he or she grows up in this context, and he becomes a Christian, and they're told that you have liberty in Christ, you're allowed to eat meat. Well, because it's so ingrained, he has a difficult time going through and eating meat, and therefore he even criticizes those who eat meat because he was brought up with this. That's weak in faith. Secondly, weak in faith because he lacks biblical knowledge. He's not growing and uh, growing in his faith because he lacks the knowledge about what the Bible has to say about Christian freedom. 1 Corinthians 8.4 we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and, and that there is no God but one. In Corinthians, the issue was aggravated because there was meat sacrificed to idols. Not only was it meat, but this was meat sacrificed to idols and Jewish Christians thought that it was forbidden to eat and partake of food that was sacrificed to idols. Paul is saying, we know these idols are nothing. That there's only one God but God. Verse 7, but not everyone knows this. And because they lack the knowledge, um, they are weak Christians. Thirdly, the weaker brother is also weak in conscience. Their conscience is overly sensitive. Not just towards sin, but over religious things, over cultural things, ritualistic things. Their conscience is sensitive. And fourthly, the brother is weak because he can be influenced to act against his conscience. Weaker brother is influenced by older, mature believers to sin and violate his own conscience in the process. Now the strong believer, who are they? The strong believer is strong in precisely the same areas where the weaker brother is weak. He is strong in faith. He is strong in knowledge. He has a strong conscience. 
and he's not influenced. He's strong in his will. So the first principle is we need to understand the commands of God, disputable areas, and then principle two, in this area of freedom, number two, do not judge based on these areas of freedom. Do not judge. There are four commands here. <coughs> Excuse me. They all say basically the same thing. Do not judge. Paul gives three commands to the strong. Verse 1, receive those who are weak in faith. The Greek word is proslambano. It is a compound verb. Lombano means to receive. The prefix pros means to oneself. It's the idea of welcoming, eagerly receiving. Paul says eagerly receive the weak believer. He is saying by that, do not try to influence, do not try to change, do not judge the weaker brother. Eagerly accept the weak brother as he is. Secondly, again, do not judge the weaker brother. Verse 1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Don't pass judgment. Third command, do not look down on the weaker brother. Verse 3, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. The positive concept is given in verse 1. This negative one is given in verse 3. It is the attitude of spiritual pride, spiritual superiority. Look, I, I have the freedom, I have the conscience, the faith, the will to eat all of this and you, you despise and you look at contempt towards those who are weak. Paul forbids that. Paul warns against that. The fourth command is given towards the weak in faith. Verse 3, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Paul tells him as well, the weak believer, do not judge the stronger believer. Don't say, oh, this guy is compromising. This guy is uh, not conservative, is morally loose. Do not despise, do not judge. This command, do not judge, sums up all these commands to these two groups of believers. And it is noteworthy that three of the commands are given towards the strong thereby teaching us that the onus, the responsibilities on the strong believer to accept and not judge and not despise, not look down. Paul gives them and gives us two reasons why we must not judge. Why we must not judge one another in these disputable areas. First of all, each man stands before God in this area. Right or wrong, it depends on that individual. Verse 5, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. The key verse for, is verse 14, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul is saying if someone eats by faith, eats and gives thanks to God, it is good. 
But if another refuses to eat, he thinks this is unclean, then while it is unclean to him, it is good that he does not eat. Each man stands for God in this area. The second reason we are not to judge is because God will judge. That is God's responsibility. That doesn't make everyone innocent. God will judge. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Verse 12. A simple teaching there. Paul is saying, do not judge because God will judge. God will keep each man accountable. God will judge whether a man has used his freedom as a cover for sin. Paul is saying, don't go beyond what is written. Don't make 11 commandments. Don't make 12 commandments. Keep it at 10. 10 is hard to obey as it is. On these disputable areas, God will judge. Number one, learn to distinguish between matters of command, matters of freedom. Number two, do not judge based on these areas of freedom. Instead of judging one another, the third principle, develop personal convictions. Develop personal convictions. I think that's important for all of us. Verse five, one man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. That last sentence there is talking about complete assurance. It's talking about being fully persuaded. Having a clear conscience, not going against one's conscience. Complete conviction in areas that are not addressed by the scriptures. So, in the New Testament, the issue was about religious freedom, right? Holy days and diet. Again, at Cornerstone, these aren't issues for us. So for our context, being fully convinced would deal with the opposite, with the freedom that we have in our culture and society, right? Our issue for our context is the freedom area, not the restricted area. What I'm talking about is being convinced, being convicted, having convictions about a particular command in the scriptures and having convictions that go beyond the word of God for yourself. It's not imposing your convictions on others, but having a higher standard that you set for yourself because you want to obey the word of God. Raising the bar. Though you are free. You're convinced about your own responsibilities. And therefore, you have convictions that are hedges against sin. Right? That will stop you before you even go near temptation. It is the mindset of knowing your own strengths and weaknesses and living by your own convictions. Guys, Christian life is not following the crowd at Cornerstone. Christian life is not conforming to cornerstone culture, following those who are older than you, and just following what they do. Christian life is having convictions that are beyond even the Word of God for yourself. 
where your theology, where the Word of God informs your faith on decision-making. Right? Now, I think all believers, especially the men, as single men who will be leaders in the future, as married men who are pastors, shepherds over their own household, it is, it is a priority that you have thought through these non-moral areas of life and you have some convictions on what you will do, what decisions you will, you will make in these non-moral areas. You know, close our time. Um, let me give to you six questions to ask, ask yourself when you are making decisions in the non-moral areas of the Christian life. Uh, I got this from MacArthur, very helpful. He had 10, but a little too much. It, I reduce it down to the bare bones. Six questions to ask on these non-moral areas as you, as you make decisions in life. Number one, there are six words, six questions. They all begin with E. And the first word is edify. And the question is, Will it be spiritually profitable? Will it build me up? Will it be spiritually profitable? Will it build me up? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Here Paul talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. And it says in verse 12, Everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible. Now when Paul is saying, when Paul says, everything is permissible, he's not saying idolatry is permissible, right? He's not saying adultery, he's not saying stealing or lying. Everything in the non-moral, disputable, opinion area, the gray area, everything is permissible. I have freedom. Everything that is not addressed in the scriptures, not forbidden in the scriptures. But he says... Though all these things are permissible, he goes on to say, not everything is beneficial. New American Standard, profitable. So the question is this, will my doing this enhance my spiritual life? Will it cultivate godliness? That's a good question. Will it profit me spiritually? Would it be my, of my spiritual advantage to purchase this? to participate in this, to watch this, to listen to this. Right? Many things in life are permissible, but does it profit you spiritually? Even friends. Are these friends profiting me spiritually? Are they encouraging me in the faith? Or are they hindering me spiritually? Would Getting involved with this, buying this, hinder me spiritually. If it will hinder you, then why do it? The answer is don't do it. A very close parallel, turn a few chapters to chapter 10, verse 23. A very close parallel is, will it build me up? Will it build me up? Verse 23, everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible but not everything is constructive. NIV, New American Standard, not all things edify. The question is, will it build me up? The word is idea of building a house. Will it add to my life things that increase my spiritual stability, increase my spiritual strength and spiritual maturity? 
Right? The word is edify. The question is, is it spiritually profitable? Second word, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 1. The second word is encumber. Encumber. <clears throat> and the question is, will it slow me down in the race? Will it slow me down in the race? Notice verse 1 of Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says that we are on a race. This race of faith. In chapter 11, there's a host of people who lived by faith. Who ran this race of faith. And by their lives, they declare that Christ is superior. And that faith in Christ works. That it produces a godly life. And by their lives, they're encouraging us to run this race. In verse 1 and 2, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, look at that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I want you to notice two things. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin. What can we conclude from that? We can conclude that there are things that, are hinder, that hinder us that are not sin. There are permissible things, things within the Christian life that are not sinful, but they still hinder us in our Christian race. So the question you and I need to ask is, will this, though it's, though it's permissible, do I have the freedom to partake of this, will it slow me down the Christian race? The word is every weight. It simply means bulk. It's not sin, but it's a weight that hinders you from running this race. It's just needless weight. Something that weighs us down. It diverts our priorities. It takes away our attention. It, it sucks our energy. It dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. Right? you got to ask that question. You know, let's say you're a world-class athlete. You know, yesterday... Uh, a guy named Tim Montgomery set a new world record for a 100-meter dash. He was a training partner for Marion Jones. He trained so hard, he set a new world record. Now, I'm willing to bet that this Mr. Tim, Mo Tim Montgomery, that for the past several years, though he was free, he didn't drink sodas. He didn't go to In-N-Out and get double-doubles, right? He didn't make a run for Tommy Chili Burgers before the meet. He didn't do that. And I, I bet you to guess that he didn't dress in a fur coat to run this race. That's not sin to eat double, double, doubles at, in and out, right? No, it's not sin. Not sin to wear a fur coat. But these are encumbrances, things that would have hindered him in the race. Right? Slowed him down from the pursuit of his prize. Anything that impinges upon our effectiveness in serving Christ... We need to ask that question and throw it aside. Cast it off. Ask that question, guys. Are you involved in something that is slowing you down? It's just dead weight. You know, for our family, uh, we, we talked about this before. For us, it was television. I mean, it was just dead weight. It wasn't encouraging us spiritually. And it was just dead weight. I mean, we have... Uh, 
a prize to pursue, pursuing Christ. And this was just taking us and slowing us and hindering us rather than assisting us in the race. But what is it for you? Right? What are some dead weights holding you back in the Christian life for you? The third word is enslave. Third word is enslave. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 6. The question is, will it bring me into bondage? Will it bring me into bondage? 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, not all things are profitable. Then he goes on, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. King James Version, I will not be brought under the power of anything. Question is, will it bring me into bondage? We should never allow a non-moral thing to become our master. We need to understand the addictive nature the addictive, sinful nature in our flesh. We're prone to addiction. Isn't it amazing how people just can't quit smoking? They, they wind up dead. They have major surgery because of cancer and they continue to smoke because they're enslaved. How many people do we know that, that their lives are run by television? Their lives revolve around television shows. They make appointments around television shows. They eat meals in front of the TV because they're enslaved. They watch endless hours of soap opera, endless hours of, of all these shows about other people's memories because they're in bondage. Even things like drugs. You know, how do you know if you are in bondage? You know, I thought about this. If you're not faithful, faithful to your responsibilities, and yet you make time for that activity, you are in bondage. Right? If you're not faithful to God, faithful to your work, faithful to church, and yet you make time to do a certain thing, to do a certain activity, you are in bondage. Right? If you are anxious, if you're not able to participate in a certain activity, and it... it, it weighs on you, it creates anxiety in your heart, because you're not able to participate and you're in bondage. Maybe a clue, maybe a sign. If something preoccupies you, you identify with it. Your identity is not as a Christian, but maybe it's as an athlete, right? Or maybe I drive a certain car, or I make X amount of dollars, right? If these things identify you instead of Christ, maybe a clue that you're enslaved to that. But the greatest fear is that you'll lose your job. And if you lose your job, then your life comes to an end. You're enslaved to it. Your self-worth is tied to that thing, that possession, rather than Christ. Now, I really think, for many of us at Cornerstone, these things have enslaved us, hindering us in the race. Fourth one fourth word. The first word is edify, encumber, enslave. Fourth word is example. Very simple. Example. This is basic. Is this, am I being a good example of a Christian? Right. Will it help other Christians by my example? Right. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, 9. Be careful, however, at the exercise of your freedom 
<coughs> does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul says, verse 13, If what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. The question is, am I a good example to other believers? Think through this. If everybody at Cornerstone did what you're doing, if all the elders were to follow your example, would that be a good thing for the church? Would that be a good thing for Christ? Or would that be a negative thing? Extrapolate your example to everyone here. Help you in your decision making. Number five, emulate. Emulate. Imitating Christ. Uh, there's that cheesy bracelet going around. Maybe has some worth. You know, what would Jesus do? And the key issue is knowing Jesus. People bypass the doctrine of Christ and becomes a moralistic thing. That's not what we want. But in our study of you know, the Gospels, we're learning who Christ is. And we understand that He's living to please God. And we can kind of understand what He would do, what He would not do. And ask yourself, am I imitating Christ by doing this? Would Jesus do this? And then finally, the final word is exalt. Exalt. The final one, will it glorify God? By my participation, by my practice, 1 Corinthians 10.31, am I exalting God? Am I lifting up His holy name? Am I honoring Him? Am I adorning the doctrine of God in my life? Will God be glorified and honored as a result of this? That's the principle of exaltation. Six words, edify, encumber, enslave, example, emulate, exalt pray that these words will remind us and help us in making decisions that will be honoring unto Him. Let's pray. Oh Father, <clears throat> we sense that with our prosperity and with the freedom that we have in, in this world. In a sense, it is a great blessing, but in a sense, it is a, it is a curse. Because there are so many temptations surrounding us in this world. Uh, so many temptations. And we have the freedom to surround ourselves with these temptations and with these distractions. Lord, we of all people in the world need wisdom and need um, strong convictions to carve out a godly life in this society, in this secular world. Lord, we do pray for grace. We know that with man, by man alone, it is impossible. We will fall short. Only by your strengthening and your guidance and your help will we be able to do this. Lord, as we started out this Sunday, Lord, keep us from temptation. Keep us from sin. Lord, grant us uh, clarity and conviction and strength to, um, to, to participate in things that only edify us spiritually, that build us up, that will not enslave us, that would, um, that would make us uh, examples to other believers, that would 
be worthy of Christ as we imitate you and that we would exalt you by our, life, by our lives. Lord, you would grant us wisdom to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.